Hello again everybody, this is uh, Jason Powers and um, today we're going to go through I think it's going to be a very difficult topic um, It's difficult because I don't have the What would you call it? The, the biological expertise to actually um, vet what's being uh, presented here So I'm making that disclosure right up front However, I think there's enough evidence and, and certainly enough uh, statistical analysis and um, other things that uh, will be discussed in, in my presentation of this. But we're going to start first with uh, some historical overlap, certainly from the standpoint of um, what happens when um, you're chasing, um, uh, chasing a goal in terms of ethics. And so we're going to start with this uh, video from, um, this was uh, put together by uh, Ford Motor Company back in, uh, right around the time they released the Ford Pinto. So here goes. Meet the Pinto. Just born. Notice the date there at the end. I'm going to close out of this. So, so this goes to business ethics. And so, uh, for those out there who are of a different age and didn't um, go through this, and I remember this from my um, <clears throat> MBA um, attendance and or receipt, receipt of a degree. But, uh, so, Lee Iacocca, this was known as Lee's car because he was the president of the um, Ford Motor Company back then. So, they were trying to come up with a, and, and of course, this is what happens when you have a salesperson in charge of your um, uh, operations. So, Ford President Lee Iacocca, the Pinto was to weigh no more than 2,000 pounds and cost no more than $2,000. You know, always catchy uh Sloganeering and uh, propaganda there, so uh, that way you can, you know, you, you know, for people who don't understand, that's that's what we've devolved into. Instead of making decisions based upon actual data and analysis, we we're uh, using sloganeering and whatnot. So anyway, what happened was is that because of the weaknesses that in the the, the car or vehicle. Uh, Ford knew the Pinto represented it, and, and I'll highlight here. So, Ford knew the Pinto uh, represented a serious fire hazard when struck from the rear, even in low-speed collisions. Ford officials faced a decision. Should they go ahead with the existing design, thereby meeting the production timetable, but possibly jeopardizing consumer safety? Or should they delay production of the Pinto by redesigning the gas tank to make it safer and thus concede another year of subcompact dominance to foreign companies? Uh, 
Ford not only pushed ahead with the original design, but stuck to it uh, for the next six years. Well, this is what happens when you have bureaucrats and uh, um, engineers and people who think that they can justify this uh, safety flaw that they had. And they did so at the time now. This is in 1970 dollars, which is a far cry from where we're at now. This was even pre uh, coming off the uh, the gold standard in 1971, thanks to Nixon, and then he and put in price controls and, and whatnot, and generated huge inflationary costs. But anyway, so they put together and this is a, how did Ford reach this con that conclusion? We don't know for sure, but an internal report. So this was put together by them. Um, this was um, fatalities associated with crash-induced fuel leakage and fires. It wasn't the supposedly wasn't written with the Pinto in mind, but certainly had an overlap uh, of their whatever their uh, pat or what would you say their their product line. So, for example, at that time they still I think the Mustang was still hot and in terms of its sales, even though. It looked like a granny car, but anyway, it was sold in 1964. It was the most popular vehicle, and that's how Lee Iacocca became who he was. So anyway, they did an analysis, and they thought that they would have 180 deaths per year. They were putting together a cost-benefit analysis. And so they <clears throat> assigned a dollar amount to human beings. So... In 1972, it was estimated that society loses $200,725 every time a person is killed in an auto accident. Adjusted for inflation today, figure would be, of course, be considerably higher. And they broke down what they thought the productivity of a person was, and then the medical cost. And of course, all these numbers are, you know, very arbitrary and very uh, interesting. So, for example, victims' pain and suffering, $10,000 they assigned at that time. Um, funeral. At that time, a funeral was 900 bucks, at least according to them. Just kind of things, this is what people do to justify their, well, justify their job for one thing, but uh, certainly justify their, um, their crassness when they reduce people to just dollar amounts, which, you know... There's been a long push by progressives to say that that's all all people on a certain uh, affiliation. Sorry, I got a cough drop in. My voice has been terrible lately. That uh, we just assign numbers to people, and that's how we make all our decisions. Or certainly, they base it upon politics. And of course, this is goes more beyond politics. This is called what do you what what would have what would have cost to fix this problem. And according to uh, Ford's insiders at that time, the estimated price of these safety improvements ranged from only $5 to $8 per vehicle. But they reasoned, and, then, and that was in that time frame, but just say, let's just say it would have cost $100 to fix a vehicle now. But they did a benefit cost of savings, and they, the benefits they thought were, um, <laughs> were substantially lower. But here's where it gets really, this is the... the <laughs> Interesting. So they did get sued over this. Approximately 50 lawsuits um, from 1971 to 78 were brought against Ford in connection with the rear-ended rear-end accidents. Uh, this was due to the fact that the that 
during that time frame, they had about 500 of uh, 500 accents. Of course, Ford put the figure lower and said it was 23, but there was 500 accents that they could uh, that had been identified that had something to do with this. And according to the sworn testimony of Ford engineers, 95% of the fatalities would have uh, would have survived if Ford had located the fuel tank over the axle as had been done on the Capri uh, automobile, so a different model, the Ford Capri. So, anyway, in the Richard Grisham uh, Grimshaw case, Richard Grimshaw, in addition to awarding $3 million in compensatory damages to the victims of the Pinto crash, the jury awarded a landmark $125 million in punitive damages against Ford. The judge reduced the punitive damages to $3.5 million. This is the problem with our uh, technocrats and judges. Until people are, until companies and government are made to feel severe pain for the decisions they make, they'll continue to do this. And this has been going on for a long time. This is, these aren't, these aren't new problems that we're feeling today. This is, this is showing the historical example of that. So, um, and this is, um. This is look closer to home. So on August 10th of 1978, 18-year-old Judy uh, Ulrich, her 16-year-old sister Lynn, and their 18-year-old cousin Donna in their 1973 Ford Pinto were struck from the rear by a van near Elkhart, Indiana. The gas tank of the Pinto exploded on impact. In the fire that resulted, the three teenagers were burned to death. Ford was charged with criminal homicide. The judge in in the case advised jurors that Ford should be convicted if they had clearly disregarded the harm that might result from its actions and the, and the disregard represented a substantial deviation from acceptable standards of conduct. On March, thir uh, March 13, 1980, the jury found Ford not guilty of criminal homicide. Hmm. So, Ford's part, Ford has always denied the Pinto is unsafe compared with other cars of its era type and era. The company also points out that in every model year, the Pinto met or surpassed the government's own standards. There you go. <clears throat> the government's own standards. So, the reason why this is so, I mean, we know what the Pfizer-Moderna situation is. So, what do, what do we know and when do we know it? And what did, uh, what did people know and when did they, what were they doing during this time frame? And that's where I'm going with this. So, um, one thing, um, uh, I guess, to go, we'll go more presently and then go, uh, go, uh, for, uh, go to what's really going on with this, um, uh, with the vaccine. So, military official predicted mRNA COVID-19 vaccines might be caused, might be paused over heart inflammation. And so... He made a uh, he sent an email on April 27th of 2021 that the uh, same day the director of the U.S. U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said that the agency was not seeing a safety signal when it came to the heart inflammation experience after getting the uh, getting the COVID vaccine, which that would be at that time the CDC director is one uh, uh, Rochelle Walensky, and she had been writing. She actually wrote an op-ed in October of 2020, right around the time uh, they were they were uh, her and Mark Lipsch Lipschitz of uh, Harvard 
in uh, another Yale University uh, <clears throat> professor I wrote about, you know, if we don't get vaccinations out there, we're uh, uh, millions are going to die, and then we're going to, of course, the Washington Post uh, blamed we're going to blame Trump because he had pre presented a argument for um, um, basically the new uh, the Great Barrington Declaration uh, regarding how we should uh, the, the appropriate measures we should have taken in order to avoid lockdowns and and properly. Um, seek therapeutics to treat people and and to uh, bifurcate the response to this, which was logical. But of course, uh, so I'm attaching her name to this because she was the one who decided to put her name on that article, and so and and, and just a point of fact that she became the new CDC director. Um, I would say ostensibly because of that. Many people who were uh, at, um, who are quote critics suddenly got hired by the uh, Biden administration to push all this stuff. Uh, she wasn't the only one. She was just one of many. Um, matter of fact, uh, I think Zeke Emanuel got a job out of this, um, and we'll we'll discuss him a little bit later. So what you're seeing here is is people are ignoring. These are technocrats. These are people who who pretend to have a firm understanding of what's going on. So just to prove that uh, argument. So this email was sent around and this was tied to both uh, the U.S. Is, so th this was a, a quote from uh, the emails. Let me go to the email itself. So Harry Chang, he's a lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army. And he emailed it out to Mitchell Medigovich of uh, California OS. OES California Gov and so this was being sent around California and this was April 27th of 2021 and trending news and he, he writes this and sends it to about 10 days trending news and whatnot and he goes through Pentagon tracking 14 cases of heart inflammation in troops after COVID-19 shots and so and then of course Israel Health Ministry was first reported to be investigating Heart inflammation, myocarditis, reports resulting from the Pfizer vaccine. The DOD is reporting 14 cases since March. Now, everybody will say, well, those are just, you know, those are a handful of cases. Why should we care about that? Well, yeah, just like just like anything else, you know, myocarditis, heart, heart issues, heart inflammation. We know there's an inflammation issue with regards to this situation. So anyway... Going back to, through this, so VAERS has uh, shown at least 45 reports of mitocarditis following the COVID-19 vaccines. And so majority of the cases occurred after the second dose, 19 cases reported after the Pfizer vaccine, and 26 after the Moderna vaccine. 62% of the American cases were reported in men between the ages of 20 and 45. So, uh, so they were worried about that this will have an adverse impact on U.S., uh, California vaccination rates uh, assessed as unlikely due to cause of mitocarditis can come from multiple sources. So they immediately say, oh, it can come from multiple sources. And um, so likely to add further concerns by general public over vaccine safety and make the vaccine wall more challenging to overcome. Which, of course, you know, when you rush it out, which this was the most rushed vaccine in modern history for certain 
um, because most vaccines are, you know, safety tested and the whole nine yards. And it usually takes up to 10 years on average to get any kind of vaccine. And it runs to that schedule. But what's really indicative is, okay, you have these signals here. And we'll, we'll actually go to the data here since I, I've gone decided to go through it. So this is California. This is actually something I've put together um, uh, for, uh, I guess, consumption. Let's see if I can get it to a level that you can read it at and stuff. I don't want to make it too small or too large. But anyway, so this is in 2021. Um, so we'll start first with the ramp up. To, uh, okay, so California had an increased death rate going on, going at the last of the year. It actually started around November um, week 49. It was at 7,000, which is well elevated over their normal amount this is a substantial and then every every week thereafter it was going up by about a thousand per week so we're talking substantial rise and this was at the end of 2020 uh however um somebody will say well that was all due to covid well i mean there were vaccines on the sh uh, on the market and i can prove that so california in particular uh, had uh, had administered uh, in particular, Pfizer through uh, right before Christmas, they had administered 125,000 shots. Um, you know what? What's the likelihood of all those? I mean, what's the probability there? We don't know. We won't know. Uh, at least not initially. And by the end of the year, they uh, Pfizer had had 291,000 shots had been uh, received by uh, California residents, and 42,000 Moderna shots had been uh, received. Um, this is as of the end of the year, and they've been distrib they distributed at that point. They had distributed one and a half million uh, of these um, vaccines. So you notice there's a differential there between administered and distributed. So by the end of January, and we're rolling forward here, they had administered in California three about three point three million shots uh, to. Of Moderna and Pfizer, and it was about 50-50 at that point. Maybe a little bit, maybe 55-45 uh, Pfizer to Moderna, and that was as of the end of January. So, so they had put a substantial number of uh, 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 shots in 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 uh, Californians' arms at that point. I mean, that's ten. That's roughly about 10% of the pot. The roughly oh about nine, eight to nine percent of the population of California in total at that point. Um, so going back to the master there, they were st now granted somebody will say, well, this chart shows less death at the, say, so by January, by the end of January, which is week four, they still had 9,500 deaths. And everybody else say, well, that, you know, they were showing a reduce. Well, this is throughout 2021. There was a spike throughout the entire year. It was above the average of, uh, the amount of deaths that happened. As a matter of fact, if you look at the numbers here, there were more. There was approximately, on average, about uh, 223 more deaths than there were in 2021 in California. This is total deaths. This isn't broken down by uh, causation because causation is uh, determined determined by coroners, determined by a host of people that I have no access to, and we don't know what been uh, what the what their literally what the cost benefit analysis was for them to define 
define deaths by certain uh, parameters, uh, in particular COVID. So, for example, California, there there was a substantial. So, as of uh, early 2021, uh, that that first week of uh, 2021, they defined uh, 5,265 deaths in California were defined as COVID deaths. Over the uh, over the overall deaths were uh, roughly 11,900. So if you take this uh, subtraction there, that actually winds up being basically the baseline of what uh, norm of what had normally been the number of deaths that occurred in California, uh, except for 2018. Just so you know, 2018 there was a a um, a heavy flu season that year, especially. But it had hit particularly like places like uh, California and Florida. I don't know if there was a weather pattern uh, situation there. There's also an older population situation, so I'd have to go county by county to figure out exactly where that might have occurred because obviously there's people that live in certain places and would have been more in, uh, might have been a localized epidemic of, uh, of uh, uh, outbreak of uh, influenza or whatnot. So that's getting into the weeds. <clears throat> Hold on a second here. So... Uh, and looking at heart, um, the same kind of deal as uh, uh, demonstrated. And now if we move this forward, not from just 2021, but 2022. Um, 2022, there's an elevated rise in um, early part. And reporting is lagging, of course. Matter of fact, the, the CDC has uh, taken a two-week hiatus as of June. I think it was June 3rd, June 5th. They've taken a two-week hiatus from reporting while they were... Uh, they're uh, reviewing their system and coming up with um, new reporting. So we're going to find out. It's going to take them two weeks because what they're probably what they're probably seeing is what we all can can uh, can uh, determine is that they're um, having issues. Um, <laughs> they they know that people can look at numbers and and reflect on them and say something's wrong here as I'm doing right now. So that's hard. And then. Here's maybe maybe the bigger, um, and this is for California, so that's risen uh, a little bit. It's not uh, the thing is is it's hard to know because uh, even though that number is higher than it was in the past, by uh, uh, but it's even substantially higher going into 2022. In 20, there's been a break uh, from uh, prior numbers in the past, and the population of California has actually declined. Um, as of 2022, there's been new reports coming out in terms of you have to take a whole, you have to pull data from multiple departments to figure out what the what the percentage breakdown of this would be. And uh, California, since you have a reducing uh, a reducing pro, uh, population, but an increase in death causality, obviously that shows a number of deaths. Then that actually shows that there's been in increase in mortality now where is that coming from I'm surprised more people haven't been more curious about that so again until you get down to the nitty-gritty of which one of these uh, so this is cerebrovascular uh, that is increased substantially from where it was in say like 2016 which was right right around 300 per week and now it's up around 340 to 350 uh, over the last two years or at last three years since 2020 
and there's been uh, a significant spikes above 450 in a week, which are well off the, the overall number there. So, and if I categorize it by just neuro, um, uh, some of neuro and cognitive diseases, it's the number even uh, is even more pronounced over the historic uh, averages and death causations. So, what am I getting at? Uh, this is just for California. I'm just trying to de demonstrate that, uh, yeah, they had signals throughout this entire time frame in particular um, to make decisions off that. And in particular, like heart, for example, um, they could have they 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 could have seen these early numbers and tied it back to the vaccine if they would have been curious enough to do that. Were they curious enough to do that? There, one one does not. I don't absolutely know that. There's no way. So by the end of March of 2021, or by the end of February, they had about uh, 8.8 8 .8 million shots have been administered. So in a matter of a month, um, they added an extra five, uh, roughly about an extra 5 million shots, 5.5 million shots in California. And that's just one example. So I'm, what I'm doing is just laying the, uh, the foundation here. They had this email chain is just a lot of uh, playing tag and, and sending the email around to the CDC and people trying to um, uh, ignore numbers or or say the numbers don't matter or they don't they're not significant. But even the FDA. Not the CDC, but the FDA even saw this, and this will become important later on. So Eric Rubin is the guy with the glasses and the ball head that's uh, third from the top here. Uh, for for the podcasters, it won't matter. But point is, is they just recently tried to pr approve the Novavax vaccine, or they had an approval hearing. It was seven hours long, so I'll leave a link in the description. I just want to queue up to Eric Rubin because he's one of the uh, people who works for the New England Journal of Medicine. He's a chief editor, and they're talking to these host of uh, people that are involved with this. But I want to move forward to, so the CDC, uh, there's a lady who does a presentation about the vaccine, or uh, about the COVID, um, the CDC information here. Her name is Heather Scroggins. So... She's involved with this, and she's got the data by age group and whatnot broken out through June 4th, which was the last day that they they um, um, were reporting this. And then there was a, a presentation done later on regarding the relative risk of uh, mitocarditis and heart situation. This is the epidemiology, um, and they've been trying to guise this number. So they show the annual incidence. So, for example, in children, according to this report, so the annual incidence is 0.8 per 100,000. This was as of 2015, 2016. And they said length of uh, stay and gradual adults, gradual decrease in incidence with age. And if you go through them, you have to go into some details here, but he has a table here. Um, I'm trying to get to the right one. It was a so this one is pretty interesting so you see though there was a significant pop in um, it says per per million doses 
VAERS reporting rates of myocarditis per million, per million one doses administered. And of course, VAERS underreports substantially. They think uh, there's been studies that say it's down around, you know, 1% one, 1 of the total uh, problem. But let's just, just for argument's sake, let's say that 10% are reported there. So that's 10 times as much, but still underreporting. So according to this, um, 18 to 24 uh, year olds, they had, uh, uh, after dose two, they had uh, 38.9 uh, instances being reported per million doses. Now people will say, well, that isn't too bad. I mean, this is, like I said, this is based on bears. But if you multiply that by 10, like I just did, and I'm doing my head, it's more like 389 or 390 instances per million doses. And for those out there who remember Six Sigma and uh, the um, uh, error rates per per million, what's a six What's a Six Sigma um, process? It's like three point uh, was it three point four million or three point four incidences per million? So that's the level that you're supposed to be at, and even without my adjustments, it, this is well over that. And if you actually make some larger adjustments, this this process. Is showing substantial uh, a substantial increase or substantial uh, probability, you know, 0.3 percent, 0.38, or actually 0.39 percent, or point. Let me get this right. 0.039 percent, which is more than the flu rate. The flu rate, uh, the death mortality rate was 0.27 percent for this virus. Um, about twice of the normal um, case fatality rate of a typical flu season, which is 0.15%. Less than 1%, 0.15%. So the the incidences of myocarditis, even if I don't make this adjustment, it, 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 would, it still would warrant some investigation. But if you actually take the fact that VAERS is underreporting, you would have an incidence of myocarditis that is higher than uh, you know, almost, you know, two and a half times um, the overall uh, fatality rate of a typical flu. And this is amongst uh, males 18 to 24 year olds. I'm just focusing on that number because that really sticks out and it's very high. And 25 to 29 is very high. Uh, like I said, we're talking about underreporting. So once you make the adjustments to this number, it becomes a substantial number enough to warrant uh, the mechanism of actually uh, going. Why is this happening? And this is their their reporting. This is this was as of May twenty sixth of twenty twenty two. Um, these are the verified to meet the case deviation provider interview or medical re record uh, review uh, primary series and uh, first uh, booster doses only. So this is the United States. Uh, this is your technocrats. They actually told on themselves there. So let's get to a flat. So, and then they go through and verify U.S. reports for VAERS on myocarditis and mRNA COVID-19 vaccines amongst 18 and older. So they go through these reports, and of course they try to. They do just like Ford did. They say that there's a, okay. So there's 21 report deaths involving myocarditis. Median age 38 years old. I um, the range is from 27 to 70, and then they got a list of uh you know 
they were, you know, cause of death was not attributed to myocarditis. They they say 15 of them weren't. So they're they're minimizing the problem uh, with with this whole situation, just like Ford would do, because they they're like I said, this is a vaccine approval hearing. They're trying to approve another vaccine for uh, COVID-19. Uh, and they want to get it eventually into kids' arms. That's what Moderna and Pfizer have been doing. That's Because if they can get it on the vaccine schedule, then, then they avoid all liability. This is what happens when you have lawmakers and people that are refusing to uh, address the issues as they see because they're more interested in making money than they are in protecting the protecting the populace they'll say otherwise but they're full of it if your investments are in these things like Pfizer or whatnot and we I think there was a database uh, I haven't checked it in a while but uh, there was a bad database of like something like 40 plus senators have uh, some kind of Pfizer stock on their portfolio and and th- this is just the thing so I, I'm not going to go through this and let this guy talk but because he, he's just going to bullshit you um, I just want to show a few points in this uh, slideshow. So here's a, then they got these uh, listing here. And we're talking about, these are human lives, by the way. They're, you know, just me, you know, talking about them. I'm not trying to be glib or anything. Uh, these are things that are actually happening and occurring and um, no one's paying any attention. And we're not even get. I haven't even gotten to the more serious consequence of all this. So, one of the things that has come to my attention, and um, let me see if I can get to it. Uh, so this article is written by ArcMedic's blog. Now I have some of this absolute proof the GP20 sequences prove beyond all doubt that COVID was man-made. So early on in this um, situation, there was a man, uh, there were multiple people who had found and GP20 is HIV. So these are inserts, um, and this is where we're getting into the details of this. And I'm not going to go through this whole uh, article, but talking about, you know, at first he tries to dismiss all the people who would troll him and say that this stuff doesn't doesn't make any sense. So to get three inserts of GP20 to exist in, in, in SARS-CoV-2, the genomic sequences that coded for them had, had to have... Uh, have had to have got there by recombination from another organism or in a lab because they don't exist anywhere in nature and it's not not possible to have to have come from another organism EcoHealth's proposal EcoHealth and Alliance proposal in 2018 perfectly described those inserts and so until now we've only discussed the peptide and it was talking about amino acids and like I said this is above my head because I'm not a biologist however I can I, I understand the concept of engineering something and uh, they have these inserts that were made into the uh, the, the virus uh, the, the SARS-CoV-2 and there was a proposal written uh, uh, written up by EcoHealth for DARPA that was rejected but obviously there was some entertaining of this so anyway we're not going to go I'm going to read enough of this to so for the when I do a podcast on this or you'll know we're not going to discuss insert 4 for now because we discussed it in part 1 but safe to say that insert 4 is quite unique and interesting and interesting sequences because it not only coded for a very useful fur a furin cleavage site 
which increases the virulence of the SARS-like virus, but it also has homology to the HIV GAG protein as you see. It also contains the unique Moderna nucleotide sequence we discussed in part one and has now been published after a long wait by Balamuride Ambati. So there was an article published about that. And I looked at it, uh, that article, and I also wrote up something regarding Moderna and some of the interesting personal connections to that. We don't need to discuss it in this article because there's enough damning evidence in the other inserts to lay this to rest. Just to put this in perspective, I'm going to show you where these inserts are in the actual spike protein mod, uh, molecule. And of course in the Pfizer-Moderna vaccine spike protein, which is identical in this area of the molecule. So yeah, the vaccine conclude, uh, has these uh, in there. So they have injected AIDS inside people. HIV, I won't say AIDS. They've injected HIV um, strains for those who have taken the vaccine. The rest of us, we got it through a natural, uh, you know, if you actually have uh, run across this before they've made some modification, you probably have the long COVID, I would hypothesize, has a lot to do with being, um, you may have, uh, your body may have adapted to it enough to where it survived. But anyway, I, I'm going to read this a little bit further. What is shown in the 3D model of the spike protein uh, trimmer, three spikes held together due to their conform, uh, conformation amino, amino acid makeup. So you can see that it makes a bit of a pyramid shape. The right-hand picture shows the tr uh, trimmer look, looking uh, down from the top in the left-hand picture. Imagine flowers in a vase. The picture on the left is looking uh, side on. The picture on the right would be looking top down. So uh, there's a... Um, for the podcast, it it, it kind of looks like a um, a little bit like a triangle with uh, uh, on each on each angle though there's a, a little stick out a little protrusion on the on the on the on each of the what would be the in, internal triangle and then there's like you know these appendages and these are where the the GP uh, one twenty is and then there's also a fourth little uh, uh, outjut which is the furin cleavage. Uh, site so going uh, a little bit further down uh, we'll just uh, skip over some of the nuances of the science here so make the analogy here he doesn't make the analogy in fact most of what the spike protein does now depends on these fragments binding if you still aren't aren't with me imagine you're a cat owner and the flowers are lilies lilies are poisonous to cats you would really need to keep your flower pot out of the way of your beloved feline to avoid those beautiful but poisonous lily heads killing your cat. Okay, so hopefully the analogies are now sufficient to, to understand that we are dealing with the viral protein inserts at the strategic location on the viral spike protein. But I need to bring this message home with another diagram, and he goes through another diagram here. The diagram shows something that is so coincidental that it's already impossible that this happened by chance. That is, they, that each of the three GP120 inserts described in the uh, uh, Pahan's paper are located at the outermost strategic points in the whole viral spike. Those pangolins, those would be your bats, to, to have managed to get the most important viral peptides in human, in human immunology to have situated themselves in, the exact, in exactly the locations needed to infect human T-cells in a bat cave, 
without there being any human in the bat cave to practice on are clever, I must admit. Okay, I'm being sarcastic. It is not possible, and it doesn't matter how many pangolins and bats go together in a bat a battling orgy. As I said before, not going to happen. But that's not all. <laughs> you see all the shills and detractors and people say, Fast Eddie Holmes, you can read about that here, are going to tell you that these peptides are still too small to be able to be used as an ultimate smoking gun in the case of lab origins. Well, uh, that's true, but irrelevant, because there are two other aspects that make it impossible to be natural. Aspect 1. The function of these inserts that did not exist before 2019 in any coronavirus were clearly stated as the intention of the DARPA diffuse proposal. In case you haven't seen it, this is a document archived here. You can see the involved players, Peter Dozik and Eco Health Alliance. And I'll go further with Mr. Dozik here in a bit, but we'll go further with this. If you look through the proposal, you probably won't make much of it because it looks like they're actually trying to look at diffusing the threat of coronaviruses. The only problem is they weren't doing that at all. This is what they said they were going to do. In their words, yellow highlights are the most important bits. So I'll read, uh, read those sentences. We will analyze all SARS-CoV gene sequences for appro appropriately conserved proteolytic cleavage sites in S2 and for the pre presence of potential furin cleavage sites. Uh, where clear mismatches occur, we will introduce appropriate human-specific cleavage sites and evaluate growth potential in Vero cells and HAE cultures. In SARS-CoV, we will, will ablate several of these sites based on pseudotyped particle studies and evaluate the impact of select SARS-CoV-S changes on viral replication and pathogenesis. We will also review deep sequence data for low abundant high-risk SARS-CoV that encode functional proteolithic cleavage sites and, and if so, introduce these changes into the appropriate high abundant low risk parental strain and then there's something about a d sign uh, which i don't have enough i don't i'm just not going to know anything about while these sites are absent from the uh, the the civet and raccoon dog strains and clad to sars cov they are present in uh, wiv1 wiv16 and schco14 supporting a potential role for these sites in host jumping. To evaluate this, we will sequentially introduce CLAD2 disrupting residues of SARS-CoV and SCHCO14 and evaluate virus growth in vitro cells. Non-permissive cells ectotopically expressed D-sign. So, the last part I have very little understanding of, but let, let's see what he says. So they were going to introduce furin cleavage sites and sites binding to the DC sign into coronaviruses. What could possibly go wrong? Well, we know about the furin cleavage sites already. What the hell is DC sign and what is needed to bind it? There you go. He's going to explain it. So, well, you might think this is a coincidence, but... And this is a journal of biochemistry. This was in April of uh, 2004. And DC signs bind to HIV-1, uh, 
glycoprotein 120 in a distinct but overlapping fashion compared with the ICAM 2 and ICAM 3. And this was written up um, by a host of authors, but we'll just go on. So D and then he uh, DC sign binds with high affinity to the envelope of the glycoprotein GP120 of HIV and has been shown in vitro to transfer HIV from monocyte derived dendritic cells to permissive CD4 T cells. It is believed that the high affinity interaction of GP120 with D sign on DC DCs facilitate HIV infection of the CD4 permissive T cells in the lymph nodes during the natural course of dendri dendritic cell migration from the peripheral um, mucosis to the secondary lympho uh, lymphoid organs. So there's some, a little bit more in this, but the point is, is uh, I think I've, I made my point. So your, C, your CD4s, your T cells are, are being impacted and it allows for permissiveness of, uh, in, in the transfer of HIV. This is just, that is just one paper. There are many DC signed GP120 binding. Essentially, it's a part of the mechanism that HIV-1 uses to bypass the immune system and gain entry into the very cells that keep your immune system working, your T cells, correct? That was one of the bigger, uh, bigger um, situations uh, that was mentioned in, um, well, um, was a docudrama in, and, and the band played on the idea of uh, uh, why are your why is the t why are the t cell counts going so low because this virus was connected to that so uh, so we'll go to aspect two here the genomic sequences coding those G, uh, gp120 loops don't exist what the hell does that mean well in order for those pangolins to get some viruses together and accidentally naturally create a new one with their clumsy claws they needed another organism that has some genomic sequences uh, the Gattaca that can transfer transfer them to transfer to the old virus to make a new one. It's called recombination. I mean, sure, the the old virus can undergo some mutations. In in a in other words, when you look at Gattaca, you can change one of the letters of the G A T, you know, etc. But these are evolutionary, very slow, and can result in deletions and changes. In order to get inserts for the, these to happen by chance is so rare, it would take millions of years to develop functional inserts by chance. So you really need a genome donor. Essentially, you need to make a chimera RNA donated from another organism to the first organism to make a new organism. In other words, for inserts of this size that are functional, the genome sequences coding for them must exist somewhere because they have to be donated to form the chimeric RNA. So let's find out, shall we? All, all we have to do is plug the genomic sequences into BLAST. BLAST is like a, it's like a search engine, basically, for, uh, for the virologists or the people that are in this field, which I'm not, so I don't know. But I've seen the results be popped out and you know they mean it just shows where these things have been stored in a database and people can look at it and see if those sequences exist in any other virus or organism that can recombine with the virus on the latter note it's important to be clear that bacterial dna cannot recombine with rna viruses in nature i'll repeat that on the latter note, it's important to be clear that bacterial DNA cannot recombine with RNA viruses in nature. So, 
but let's just accept that for let's just in other words he says for sake of argument but let's just accept that for a minute we have three gp gp120 hiv peptides inserts to blast the tng t kr the hknnks and the rsl rsyl tpg dsssg two of the two of them are uh, what are called six mirrors requiring 18 nuclei, uh, nucleocytes to encode three for each amino acid. So in other words, it's just mathematics there. Um, so remember, the recombination between viruses occurs at a genomic level, the nucleotides, and in, uh, not at the peptide level. In other words, to, sh in, uh, to in other words, to show a recombination event has has occurred to insert the, this. Uh, TNG TKR. We need to find the genome sequence that encoded TNG TKR and see if it exists in another virus. So we need a genomic sequences for the peptides, and here they are. And he, he gives the sequences here. Immediately, you can see that the longer one will be most interesting. In other words, the longer the your um, the longer your peptide. Uh, uh, is the more complex the the sequence would be for the uh, for the nucleotide and nucleotides. Like I said, this is not my field. I'm just reading through this and, and it basically a basic step by step understanding. Immediately, you can see the longer one would be the most interesting because the probability of encoding occurring by change is approximately one in four to four to the power of n, which is n. And in the number of nucleotides, so uh, 36, uh, uh, 36 length is one in four billion trillion or so. But for the smaller ones, we will need to restrict the virus again. So let's do it. And he goes through this, uh, puts the information in here. Here's the first one on the screen, and it pops it out. So there's some sequences here. They're all HIV isolates. The output for insert two is more interesting and busy, so it requires a filter for the percent idea. In other words, uh, get a perfect match. So there's a matching scenario here, and and shows where they came from and what their uh, score is. Pretty much all those are f uh, phages, which can be used in the lab to transfer genomes to bacteria. But all those that appear to be 100% align alignment sometimes blast does strange things, and in fact. No, in fact, none of the list matches all 18 nucleotides. That is, there were no 18 per 18 match in the sequence of viruses. So it wasn't. There's nothing out there that matches 100%. So he goes back through this. He gets 16 of them. Let's see on the other one. So of our, so of our two sequences so far, he he, he did a run the scan here. I'm gonna just stop here for a second. So far, we have two that don't match any viruses. Uh, viruses fully 18 to 18, and the closest matches an HIV-1 and bacterial phage. Hmm. Now the last one, because it's long, it's a longer sequence. We will be less restrictive for our search, just exclude, just excluding SARS-CoV-2 and synthetic constructs. We can use the megablast for highly similar uh, similar sequences. So no significant similarity found. And there we have it. three gene sequences. None of them exist in viruses. One of them doesn't exist in nature at all. Yet they appear in a virus that arose from nowhere one year after EcoHealth said they were going to make one that did exactly what they proposed. 
and they produce peptides that arise exactly on the binding sites of the virus. As I said, those pangolins are they're they are smart, I tell you. And then he you know, that's basically the end of it. So and then he's got uh, Charles Ritz, Rixie's uh, blog, Prometheus Shrugged. And anyway, I, uh, I've looked over that. But people say, okay, so what? You know, well, here's, an, here's from Charles Rixie. So, as it turns out, there are some people that have been doing this modeling on the HIV spike back in the day. He and Gary, um, this is another scientist, actually, Gary appears in the Fauci emails, which we're going to get to in a second. Did the same with SARS. Um, that same year, he created the first FDA-approved fusion uh, fusion inhibitor, uh, Fusion, F-U-Z-E-E-O-N. So think of uh, neon and uh, fuse. He even touted it in his 12920 80-page little book on uh, NCOV. Then... And then the SARS uh, spike in 2003. Within five months, the FDA had cleared his peptide fusion inhibitor, Fusion. What he discovered is that there was this potential fusion inhibitors that worked on HIV to also work on HCOV, uh, HCOVs. The, w, uh, the WIV was really into peptide. Um, the Wuhan um, Virology Lab was really into peptide inhibitor research. They were also working on HIV vaccines, don't you know? They knew, just as Gall uh, uh, Gallagher had pointed out in 2003, that, the, that including enough of the HIV inserts to construct the GP120, GP41 will allow them to use a peptide infusion inhibitor instantly to keep themselves safe. Yeah. They even created an aerosol version, which is certainly fortuitous since the standard intranasal spray would be less effective against SARS-CoV, which could attach to the lungs in far greater quantity due to the furin cleavage site. So yeah, they uh, created they created an antidote for this. To get so what they gave you was an uh, HIV virus. They didn't give you the flu. So that's the reason why there's been all this strangeness with this situation and, and why these people are doing hard, full court press to hide this from everybody. And then this is, uh, this is from the same um, uh, tweet, uh, a bunch of information that it, it, it doesn't matter, but I'm just showing it. But macrophages and dendri dendritic cells, DC sign, so the binding of the, the, the HIV GP120. And then the, a picture or a diagram of the GP120 and how it sticks out. So yes, uh, your biologists know this is going on. So, and this goes to the next thing. Health, healthy young people are dying suddenly and unexpectedly from a mysterious syndrome as doctors seek answers through a new national register. <laughs> this is as of June 8th of uh, 2020. This is a few days ago. People age under the age of 40 being urged to go and get their hearts checked. So myocarditis, pericarditis, this is all, this is just sick. Many potential to be at risk of having sudden adult death syndrome. Yeah, they've, uh, this, there was a paper on this done back in 2005, but it hasn't been cited very often. I checked it out and it's about 40. There's just a, the, the thing is, is uh, it was still tied to heart, you know, it's, it's tied to the heart. Which, uh, of course, you know, isn't it convenient to 
to have this syndrome. And like I said, this paper was published in 2005. So when the original SARS and, and very other things, they were maybe they were already testing this out in a lab. So we have scientists out there that are creating these chimeras in labs around the world, including Ukraine probably, with uh, the 46 that the United States uh, military has suddenly said that they have all these labs. So anyway, and they, it, of course, it took a 31-year-old woman who died in her sleep last year, may have had, they called SADS. You, you just can't make up these names. That tells you where we're at. So what's this got to do with the price of tea in China, you may say, with regards to conspiracy? Well, here's one part of this. So this is a guy named Fernando Francisci Tatish. T-A-T-S-C-H. I can't pronounce So he works for Abbey V. And the reason why I mention this, okay, so this was an email sent to... Fauci on January 30th of 2020. This was even before the engineered the the email was sent about engineering of the virus. But the subject matter is called consultancy request coronavirus. Dear Fauci, on behalf of Abby V, I would like to explore your interest, explore your interest and availability for scientific consultation. Hmm. Abby V is interested in your scientific view of the COVID-19 epidemic. So they're already declaring it an epidemic or pandemic. Your assessment will be very informative for us in the context, and, and they block that out. If you're interested, we will we will need a brief CV in order to elaborate uh, elaborate a consultation contract. Once the contract is executed, we would like to invite you for a phone conference, which will include a, a few medical Abbey V colleagues. Look forward to hearing from you. With best regards, Fernando uh, Tadish. He's the therapeutic area head for HCV, RSV, whatever that is. And he works for ABV. And you say, well, what, who gives a damn about ABV and what, what's that got to do with the price of tea in China? And he emails him again. Uh, uh, then the very next day, on Friday, another response. The below invitation is for a meeting identical to the advisory forward. We wonder if a short phone call could be beneficial to offer further context. With best best regards, Fernando. So why was he sent? Uh, so they sent another meeting. This is on the thirty-first, and he sent it to he carbon copied Hans Bacher, uh, uh, Baderish of I can't even pronounce the name, but uh, those who can, Vala uh, Valaby. Uh, so V A L L A B H. I don't know how you pronounce that. It's a different name from anything I'm used to. So Fauci sent to Christina Cassetti. He says, "Please handle." And uh, uh, this was on Saturday, February first. So he delegated to uh, Christina Cassetti uh, this uh, situation. And you'll say, "Okay, what's that matter to anybody or anything?" Okay. So later on, and we'll get to it here. Just a second. As soon as I can. Okay. So Thomas Hudson works for Abbey V too. He got a little bit more, um, let's just say, he got a little bit more uh, game time play. So, because Francis Collins, ostensibly Fauci's boss, directly emailed him instead of uh, uh, sidestepping this. And this is tied to, what this is all tied to is, um, Abby V was um, 
testing lapinavir or their uh, their the name of the products Calitra. Uh, no, it's a it's a it's an anything that ends in IR is an AIDS virus AIDS uh, drug. So remdesivir, lapinavir, um, there's there's a whole list of them. They've been the there's a I seen a presentation where there's like I think there's up to like 15 or 20 IR drugs that are specifically tied to HIV. Um, anyway, so he goes, Tom, thanks for reaching out again. I can only imagine, and then it's all blacked out. The best contacts would be the WHO chief, chief scientist, uh, Sumya uh, uh, Swaminathan, and potentially Director General Tedros. Let me know if you hit a roadblock with the WHO. I might, I might then want to weigh in too. And so this was, uh, this is March 16th. This is tied to what was going to become the WHO solidarity trials, uh, by the way. So Thomas has been uh, Thomas Hudson emailed Francis Collin uh, earlier, and he just said thank you to this. But let me get to I think he, said, he emailed Fauci directly. So let me see if I can get that up here. Okay. So. So it's an evolving situation. See, their drug failed, and then the the reason why I know it's tied to that is because uh, I've been dealing with this. Um, uh, when I say I've seen what the what causes, so we're gonna go to another name here, just so you can see this. His name is Baden. And he should pop up too much, nineteen times. Well, bunch, bunch more times, but okay. Anyway, so Dr. Lindsey Baden is one of um, um, he did a paper. He um, he works for the New England Journal of, of Medicine. He's the deputy editor, so that's what we're showing here. So I'm gonna close. I'm gonna just minimize this, and so Abby V. Abby V's HIV drug stumbles in COVID trial, but. But one analyst begs to differ. So this was March 19th. So, so of course, here's the, the, the money there. EBV's HIV med. So they even call it HIV. Calitra or Aluvia. A combination of antiviral drugs, lapinavir and ritonavir. Failed to, uh, across the board in a 199 patient clinical trial. This was in China. And it was started January eighteenth, twenty twenty. It didn't top it. It didn't top standard of the care of improving clinical symptoms, extending lifespan, or cutting viral shedding in patients hospitalized with severe COVID. Results from the study published Wednesday in a New England Journal uh, show. So, and like I said, the physicians at the China's Jin Jin Tan Hospital in the city of Wuhan, of course. So, anyway, which was recently the episode, therefore concluded that Calitra doesn't offer additional benefits over standard care. But, and then they have this talk with the discussion, but down here in the article, the editorial, so here, in a separate, in a separate editorial that ran alongside the study, infectious disease specialist Lindsay Baden, director of clinical research at Brightham's Brightham and Women's Hospital and New England Journal 
uh, editor, Eric, Ru uh, he's the editor-in-chief, Eric Rubin. So Eric Rubin was in that uh, FDA presentation. So, and both Biden and uh, Rubin are uh, really good friends with uh, Fauci. Like, they do podcasts together, and they talk about things, and they always introduce some laud and praise uh, Dr. Fauci. So, or, and I use that term very loosely. Well, I'm going to call him, I could call him Dr. Mengele at this point, but certainly they're in on the, they're in on the inside or close by. Though they call the results disappointing, Dr. Uh, uh, and oh, by the way, Biden and Rubin pointed to the fact the team chose a challenging population to study. So yeah, when, when they don't get the results they want, they, they always have a excuse because they're just going to go again until they get a study that'll give them enough uh, uh, cover fire so that they can continue to do what they want to do. They've already presupposed what they, what they want to do. They just have to find some way to get to that outcome. And that's why they manipulate studies. They manipulate, uh, they'll manipulate dosage. They'll manipulate the, when they drop it. They'll manipulate the endpoint of the study. They'll, they'll go through a host of mechanisms to hijack or are so if they have an rct they always the observational studies they don't like or they say they don't like but they they'll say oh gotta have a randomized control trial and then you find out that they manipulated the trial and move people from one one category to other uh, in other words poisoning the study because it doesn't work that way um and and so the behavior of these people is is unethical to the to the highest extreme because they're not following the actual rules of science. They're just making it up as they go along. So, um, going beyond that, so this is the actual, they wrote this up. This was March 18th. So, as I said, Abby V was contacting uh, Fauci. And then this editorial was published, uh, you know, just a couple days after that. Uh, uh, this uh, It was published that. And Biden, oh, and uh, Lindsay has lots of uh, conflicts of interest, namely... Uh, Bill and Melinda Gates, the Moderna. Uh, he's gotten grant money from all all these various things. He was run. He was in charge of this. Plus, he's located at Brightums, and the one of the chief uh, people that they were dealing with at that time was a guy named Mandrip Midra, who works as the cardiology director there, and they were involved with the Surgisphere uh, campaign, and of course, Gates gave. Uh, uh, Brightum's five million dollars in March of 2020, and of course uh, the guy, the 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 Surgisphere CEO, already had uh, had had was some severely compromised in terms of the fact that he already had three standing lawsuits against him. He was dismissed in February 2020, and then lo and behold, this little-known company out of Chicago, by the way, Chicago, where Abby V is headquartered. Suddenly, this guy realizes he's got this massive database of 80-some thousand patients, which was all, you know, found to be very unusual. And he hijacked both hydroxychloroquine with usage of zinc and whatnot. They used QT as uh, uh, the, the measurement. So, tie dog and your heart murmuring, stuff like something that they can monitor with an EKG. They used that to hijack hydroxy and they hijacked ivermectin because on that side it was considered beneficial. But since it used the same data, the surgisphere, the same outfit, uh, they managed to hijack both things while they were pushing remdesivir at the same time, which we're going to show here in a second. 
uh, through Fauci's emails, through his own, through some of his, uh, some of his uh, close friends and buddies. Um, so anyway, going back to this study uh, on January 18th. So this is January 18th, the 2020. The first patient, uh, first patient was enrolled in this open label trial about a week after SARS had been identified in sequence. About a week after, well, it's interesting. Yeah, you know, they managed to do this, and they were working on it right away. Right away, they worked on HIV drugs for the. This was sold to us as this was going to be. This is a. This is a coronavirus. So if it's a coronavirus, why are they pushing all these uh, high, ex highly expensive? And as I've just laid out, they knew that they had HIV in it. So they were trying to. Uh, I mean, they knew what the sequences said. These people aren't 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 stupid. I mean, they certainly shouldn't be. They should know biology better than I do, and uh, they honestly uh, they had to keep it a hush hush at the fact that this was actually uh, what they had designed. So anyway, this didn't work, and this drug didn't work. Remdesivir didn't work, and we'll find out. Uh, and I'll go to the receipts there. So, botanism it has doesn't have anything to do with this, but um, Emmanuel, I'm gonna uh, you know have to bear with me. So, let's see if it pops up here fairly quickly. I got most of this stuff highlighted, though I I'll be the first to admit I don't. I probably should have put in Zeke instead of. Uh, let's see if okay. So, there I go. So. So here you get this. Uh, he, this is Zeke, Ezekiel Manuel. Uh, this is uh, he. He works for at this time. Uh, he was working at the University of Pennsylvania. This is an earlier. These are earlier uh, emails, by the way. So we're gonna go to the next one if I can ever get there. Okay. So. So. We'll get to the ones. So these are all the. Uh, it gives you an interesting. So he's talking to his, uh, Tony for quite a while about this, but let's see here. Let's get to the one that I really want to highlight. Here it is. So there's multiple. Uh, it starts actually um, a few days. So here we go. So April 30th. This is tied to the strong endorsement of remdesivir. Was it was it a bit forced? My reading was the data were weak, and in normal times for normal disease, it is not enough to approve, and very unlikely to to really impact the COVID-19 disease pattern, regardless of supply issues. So, even he looked at the. Uh, this was a study. Uh, this was uh, one of the. There were multiple studies. There was a New England Journal of Medicine and a Lancet, and neither one of them provided the 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 impetus to use remdesivir. This is aside from uh, other people who have uh, looked at what remdesivir did in regards to the Ebola virus, where uh, introducing it caused a higher fatality uh, rate than uh, the 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 actual <laughs> virus itself. So we're talking about the endpoint, literally the the remdesivir study that was done on I think it was tied to Ebola. Don't hold me to that. Uh, was worse than uh, than getting the disease itself, and Ebola is nothing to be messed with. So Fauci didn't like being called out on that on April 30th. I did not strongly endorse it. 
you know, this is this is Fauci's whole mouth. I specifically said it was not a knockout drug. It was only a baby step in the direction of developing more and better drugs. Yeah, developing more and better drugs, including vaccines in particular. Um, I said that it was important because it proved in a well-powered, randomized, placebo-controlled clinical trial. You know, notice the bloviation there. Uh, that one can suppress the virus enough to see to to see a clinical effect as modest as the effect was. There was no, there was some, no substantiation of that. Uh, the towards the, they were getting the the same thing. I didn't I didn't think I forced anything, and then, but this is April thirtieth. He responds, and then uh, the, the so they're having this conversation throughout this day. By the way, one day. So this is two twelve. And because Ezekiel is important, he responds to him three hours later. And then Ezekiel responds to him an hour, uh, roughly an hour later. Sorry for misreading what you said. I think maybe I overinterpreted. Lots of finance people called and seemed like I was a downer compared to you. But I think we agree. So finance people. So it goes to, it goes to what I've been saying is it's all about money for these people. And they go on and they talk to each other and talk. Uh, I, Look forward to chatting with you soon. And then he goes up here and says, hey, let's go have dinner. And oh, by the way, Ezekiel, man, his wife, so Fauci's wife took over for where Emmanuel was in terms of, I think they they actually are were at the Department of, they're supposed to be uh, ethics in the situation. And Fauci's wife works with something tied to ethics. The, the, the irony is just beyond, beyond anything. So here's the next little data point since we know about Peter Daszak. So the reason why this is important, and I've mentioned this over uh, more than once. So here's Peter Daszak. He's, he pops up in the emails too. So so this was, uh, uh, we're going to go to where he really pops up, what really matters here. So this is interesting, by the way. So uh, this is uh, uh, Newt's World. You can actually, I downloaded this po podcast. So yeah, February 9th, these guys were talking to each other. They both were uh, um, on listed on the Newt's World's uh, podcast, both Fauci and Dazzy. So yeah, that's where we're at. So uh, then you have these uh, papers here. I will not, I agree, I will not be co-author. So this is from Fauci and the Gefolkers. So, we're going to get to the, the email that I want you guys to see in a second here. So, you got Ebright. You got a whole bunch of people. None of these people really, they have no, they have no uh, principles that they won't throw, throw to the wolves here. And I might, I might have to go to a different search term, but uh, we'll get to it if we can. Okay, right here. Bingo. So this is an email that was sent. This shows the Dazic uh, issue and situation. So I'll highlight it here since I'm in this uh, one. So if I can get it to hi highlight. So this this paper here, this was actually carried out not in May, but uh, it was carried out in August of 2020. You can look it up online. Um, it was sent by uh, Julie Pavlin of in the National Academies. Uh, to Fauci, and this was sent at the end of February. So this is before anything's been declared, a, uh, before lockdowns, before, matter of fact, the Democrats are out doing a uh, doing a blitz in uh, Chinatown. Uh, Nancy Pelosi was, I think, February 
25th or 24th. Anyway, it was late February. So she was out in Chinatown trying to show how tolerant she was and all this other garbage. So this this one this uh, workshop we actually extended uh, wound up being I think a four day workshop, and I invited people like Peter uh, Peter Hosens of uh, Baylor. He was involved, but the reason why it's important for this is so uh, the important you know we talk about vaccine hesitancy to prevent. So this conference uh, introduced. Uh, they were talking about the legal argument for coercion and they're willing to use up to and including force to get people to take a vaccine against the Nuremberg Code. So here's just, you know, this is the person we're dealing with. This is global health. These people, they're all globalists. They're all idiots. They, so what's key is here, Dazik is actually, he, he was like the master of events and he was actually a co-chair. On, on, there's a, a, this was bifurcated. But then you also have this guy named Kevin Anderson, who's t attached to the Department of Homeland Security, uh, just so you know. And then that, uh, and then you got the whole uh, list of. This isn't the whole list. This was just a partial list. This is what they just put together on the fly. But it was a good start. But key is the Peter Dozik uh, being mentioned here. So all these uh, viruses and and whatnot. So we have HIV. We, I talked about it, Abby V here. Um, Biden, of course, uh, appears again with Merck's uh, antiviral. So here is uh, Merck's treatment for a mullen. I can't even pronounce it. Pronounce it. It's M O L N U P I R A V I R. It's a it's a, another antiviral AIDS drug. And of course, we have. And we have our our friend Lindsey Biden again pops up, and and of course he's an a don't get me wrong he his his field and his specialty is in this but the the fact that he is so connected to all the the players, you know he's not unimportant he's very important he isn't the only one in that specialty or field. In my many years of chairing this committee, so he's a chairman he chairs the FDA. Uh, this is this is the this is the first meeting that has gone over its time limit, which I think speaks to the complexity of the issues. Lindsey Bodden of uh, Brightums. So, yeah, the endorsement covers uh, adults with mild to moderate COVID within five days of symptoms onset. The interesting thing here, or okay, so this is tied to Merck. He's also tied to Moderna. He's tied to just he's he's deep in this whole situation and he's Fauci's buddy um, so lastly we can look at the Department of Homeland Security here just for a second so just remember George W. Bush was the one who made the made the push for the Department of Homeland Security uh, which has been used against us which is being used against us they want to create a department of disinformation underneath That's the Department of Homeland Security now they've been turned on us this is what you get when you have bureaucrats out there who uh, the department I, I shouldn't highlight that it's hard to read so anyway the pro president proposes to create a new Department of Homeland Security the most significant transformation of the US government in over half a century by largely transforming and realigning the current confusing patchwork of government activities into a single department centralization of power whose primary mission is to protect our homeland which it doesn't I mean there, we have a border crisis, and yet 
where's the Department of Homeland Security? If you're really interested in the Homeland Security, you wouldn't leave the, the southern border wide open. I mean, it's like, you know, oh, we're going to defend against all threats, you know, foreign and domestic, but we're going to leave our back door open and let everybody who wants to come in, come in, you know. Yeah, it takes nobody with any level of logic to to understand that you know they have no no cons the the idea of homeland security is total because we have been turned into the domestic threat. So this is what happens when you have our apparatus that is at the back end of its. Uh, it will the 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 current U.S. Uh, federal government. Eh, it needs to be deconstructed down to its you know most minimal parts if we're if we are to have a country left at the end of this decade that's kind of where i think we're at so anyway that's just a this is my opinion about that but uh and we'll end on we'll end with a couple things this is tied to the progressives why progressives love government experts and there was a just here a quick uh, analysis here. Yeah, the expert class is a tool for state building. The success of this idea presents a great victory for progressive ideology. Progressives have long long been committed to creating a special expert class as a means of building state power. In the United States, for example, the cult of experience really began to take hold in the late 19th and early 20th centuries and led directly to support for more government intervention in the private sector. As Maureen Flanagan, Flanagan notes in Progressives and Progressivism in an Era of Reform, social science expertise gave political progressives a theoretical foundation for cautious proposals to create a more activist state. Professional social scientists composed a tight circle of men who created a space between academia and government from which, the, from which to advocate for reform. They addressed each other, trained their students to follow their ideas, and rarely spoke to the larger public. Exactly. And, you know, I, I can, I'm even a product of that in regards. So, for example, I, I, you know, I got a degree in industrial engineering, and Frederick uh, W. Taylor was, uh, you know, he created a, a whole concept of how to, you know, use expertise, uh, thurblings, and, you know, for those who know, know the movie Cheaper by the Dozen and all these other kind of things. You had these people come along who, you know, believed in the managerial class, you know, you know, structuring and coordinating together how work was supposed to be done and how, how to best utilize that to gain, garner more, more productivity out of people. But this thing can also be turned into something where, um, you push along ideas that have no business being pushed along, and we'll end on a video regarding that because, while I mean it's it's a a feat of engineering, it, it's impractical and will never. It, it it's the kind of uh, hope and pie in the sky wishful thinking um, that goes along with a host of ideas that are out there with people. So. We can go through the. I I'll leave a link in the description of this for those who want to uh, read about you know central planning and and this kind of stuff and who should rule and how things have been uh, how we've been uh, put together uh, to fall prey to all this. Uh, so yeah, we'll go to this. So this is a example of of uh, creating something that is impractical. And though it looks, you know, technologically marvelous, uh, you know, 
and they're going to you know this is German this is German technology so I'll, I'll let it I'll let the video play and I'll shut up here for a second so this is a liftoff of the podcasters it's a special plane it's basically a vertical a vertical takeoff vertical landing and they have, uh, I think it was like 36 uh, battery, 36 onboard special battery componentry to create this, uh, create this airplane. And that's what it is, an airplane. And of course, they want to make it so it'll go very fast and whatever. But uh, yeah, 60 knots. So they're uh, showing showing off this ability. But you you can see uh, it. You know how much money was put into this to make this. Uh, you know it looks really cool. Don't get me wrong; it's very, you know, it's very um, sci-fi. But what's the practicality of this? I mean, the engines, for example. I mean, you can't work. Uh, can you fly this in weather of any kind? I mean, for example, if it, could this ever fly in a in a hailstorm? No, of course not. Not saying, not saying airplanes. Just, just the way it's designed is it designed to be capable in all kinds of weather. So if you can only fly in, in uh, beautiful weather, then you know what do you have? So there you go. They're still working on it, but they're planning on building a bunch of these. But they're very happy with this, of course. It just shows that they 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 can spend lots of efforts on this type of stuff like I said very it looks very cool flying and stuff like that but uh, what's the practicality of it and it's supposed to carry this one I think this model has eight eight people maybe 12 people like I said I'm all for technology but I'm, I think there has to be some practicality that has to be uh, surveyed with every every idea so I'm gonna leave it there. Leave it there for now. Uh, so ending it, when we talk about ethics and talk about you know this whole this whole montage of things that have been shoved down people's throats, you know we should really we really should be looking back at the this Ford case here, where you have you know you know this idea that we don't have uh, uh, engineers. We have people put together, in, and I didn't even get into the Moderna thing. We have uh, people that are putting putting together these uh, viruses, or doing these lab experiments, and and you know, there's a high probability this was, you know, intentionally done. And of course, now you have the intentionality of of uh, of a rushed vaccine onto the market. Which has infected everybody with an HIV um, um, chimera that they put together, and of course, there's enough circumstantial evidence that shows that uh, they knew exactly what they had, and yet they didn't tell anybody, because of course, you know, uh, that would raise quite too many questions and panic. That's the reason why they have to say it's natural, it's natural, it's natural. You know, anybody who questioned that that theory, and uh, you know, it just uh, it goes to show you, 
even uh, Nicholas Wade, who who did an article to to lampoon uh, the Dazic uh, situation. And Peter Dazic is your outside player. He's the guy who, you know, EcoHealth has gotten millions of dollars from the United States government. You can look that up uh, through grants. Uh, EcoHealth Alliance is uh, tied to the One Health. That's been uh, 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 the research of others who are on this path. Uh, 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 um, Mr. O'Shea out there, uh, who's uh, you know noticing what the this is all a very very well oiled uh, kind of uh, push to get us all into their box, and uh, not only just on the health box but the financial box. And they're doing it through whatever means. They, the people that have been involved with this and have not been um, sought out for adjudication or judgment or however you want to call it, been sought out to you know be arrested and, and fully uh, uh, you know, put under the the microscope. Their day has to come, or else we don't. We're not going. To, well, we're not going to have a country. And we may not even have humanity. So I know that sounds overly dramatic, but uh, it certainly it certainly seems the case if, if we continue to have the problems with uh, uh, people uh, from here on out, which we will. Um, it was a variable time bomb. So anyway, that's where I'm going to leave it for now. And thank you very much for listening.